As the children return to their seats, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. We will read verses 1 through 13. That is the New Testament reading, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. And the Old Testament reading will be Exodus 13, 17, all the way through to 14, 14. 1 Corinthians 10, Exodus 13. You have probably noticed that I try to select New Testament texts that correspond in some way to the Old Testament passage we're considering, or if we're preaching through a New Testament book, to do the same with an Old Testament text. I don't always return uh, to these passages in uh, the, the sermon. I just trust that you're listening carefully and trying to connect the dots. And indeed, um, there are dots to be connected here between 1 Corinthians 10 and Exodus 13. Um, I pray that you're able to do it. That's all I'll say. Okay. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Paul the Apostle writing to the church in Corinth. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things, these things that happened at the time of the Exodus, I'll help you a little bit here. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down. For our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let us go now to Exodus 13. And consider verses 17 all the way through to 14, 14. Exodus 13, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. 
The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh the king, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea at Piharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He bless the preaching of it today. We've come now to a new section of the book of Exodus. In 1.1 through 13.16, Israel was in Egypt. And there in that section we heard about the brutal oppression of the Hebrews at the hand of the Egyptians, of the call of Moses to serve as the Redeemer of God's people, and of the deliverance of the Hebrews from Egypt through the outpouring of ten plagues. There in that first section of the book of Exodus we considered Israel in Egypt, and we also learned a lot about God. We saw that He preserved His people in Egypt. He revealed Himself to them through Moses as Yahweh, the Great I Am, And He saved His people from bondage. Stated very succinctly in that first section of the book of Exodus, the Lord is presented to us as the preserver and Savior of His people. Now from 13.17 through 24.11, we will consider Israel in the wilderness on the way to Mount Sinai. And once there, the Lord will reveal Himself to Israel on the mountain, just as He revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush. He will give Israel the law. He will establish a covenant with them. So then, if God is presented as preserver and Savior of His people in the first portion of Exodus, in the second portion He is presented as Israel's companion. Not only is the Lord the saving Lord, He is also the covenant Lord. He saved His people from bondage and oppression, but He also 
went with them to guide them, to reveal Himself to them, and to enter into a covenant with them. The last portion of the book of Exodus runs from 24.12 through to the end of the book. And there we will consider Israel around the tabernacle. So first we considered Israel in Egypt. Then we considered Israel in the wilderness and also at Mount Sinai. And then finally, in this last portion of the book of Exodus, we will consider Israel around the tabernacle. And there in that section, the Lord is portrayed as the indweller. As the indweller. So the Lord, Yahweh, He is the preserver and Savior of His people. He is also the covenant companion of His people. And then finally, He is the indweller of His people. I mentioned this general three-part division of the book of Exodus to remind you of the story that is told here. And as you can see, this book is not only a story about deliverance. It is also a story about covenantal companionship and indwelling. And you can see the progression, I'm sure. The Lord delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage. He also went with them as companion. He revealed Himself to Israel on the mountain, just as He had revealed Himself to Moses in that bush that was burning, yet not consumed. He entered into a covenant with them, and eventually He did come to indwell them. He dwelt in the midst of them through the tabernacle. The Lord is not just Savior. He is also covenantal companion and the indweller of His people. And as I say all of this, perhaps you are thinking to yourself, this storyline sounds familiar. It sounds familiar. Redemption, covenantal companionship, indwelling. And you'd be right, it sounds familiar, not only because you know the story of the Exodus already, but the storyline of Exodus corresponds to the storyline of the Gospel. Jesus the Messiah has accomplished our redemption. And He, by the Spirit, does draw men and women into a covenantal relationship with Himself through faith. And God indwells those who believe in Christ by the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? He's there speaking to the church. So the storyline of Exodus matches the storyline of our salvation in Christ Jesus. Do you see it, brothers and sisters? And not only is this the storyline of our personal and present salvation in Christ Jesus, it is also the storyline of the overarching story of redemption. God has rescued a people from the domain of darkness. He has transferred them into the kingdom of His Son. And He will one day bring them safely home into the new heavens and earth, where He will dwell in the midst of them for all eternity. At that time, all will be His temple So then, what Israel experienced in an earthly way, all who have faith in the Messiah have experienced in a spiritual way. We've been redeemed. We have entered into a covenantal companionship with Christ, and the Spirit of God indwells us even now. Furthermore, this present experience of ours is but a small foretaste of greater things yet to come. When Christ returns, our redemption will be brought to a consummation. We will enjoy full and everlasting communion with God as He dwells in the midst of His people forever and ever in the new heavens and earth which Christ has earned. Again, I am saying that the experience of the Hebrews was an earthly type or model of the spiritual experience of God's elect in every age. Their earthly journey corresponds to to our spiritual journey. I had a whole portion of the sermon written out here that I deleted where I went back to that 1 Corinthians passage that I read earlier in order to 
explain and justify this method of interpretation that I'm bringing to the book of Exodus. Did you see what Paul did back there in 1 Corinthians in that passage that I read? He's talking about the Exodus, all sorts of features of the Exodus, the cloud, the Red Sea passing through it, water from the rock. And what does he say? The rock was Christ. And twice in that passage he says, these things happened as an example for us. Did you hear him in that passage? In other words, this is the way that the Apostle Paul read the story of the Exodus. Real earthly event, real earthly deliverance, but it was really about Christ. And these earthly experiences that the Hebrews had there at the time of the Exodus, in the wilderness, on the way to Sinai, and in the tabernacle later, they were examples for us. They're meant to be picked up and applied by us in a spiritual way. I think it's important for us to see that. And indeed, that will be the approach that I take Always, as we study through Exodus, but especially this morning, what can we learn from the sojourning of Israel, therefore? That's the question. Israel's been redeemed from bondage. Now they're going out into the wilderness and towards Sinai. They're sojourning towards the promised land. If the first portion of the book of Exodus corresponds to our life before Christ, our life in bondage to the kingdom of darkness, and if the first part of the Exodus describes Deliverance, the deliverance of the Egyptians, which of the Hebrews, which corresponds to our deliverance from the domain of darkness when we came to faith in Christ. Then this second portion of the book of Exodus is going to correspond to what? Except our sojourning. Israel sojourned in the wilderness, and we are sojourners too, brothers and sisters. We are sojourning in the wilderness even now as we head towards the promised land, that is to say, the new heavens and the new earth. What can we learn from the sojourning of Israel? Well, if there is one thing to take away from our passage for today, it is this. The Lord leads those He redeems. That's the point that I want you to get today. The Lord leads those He redeems. This was the pattern or the model that was established at the time of the Exodus. Those the Lord redeems, He does also lead. The Lord delivered Israel from brutal Egyptian oppression. He pried them from the death grip of Pharaoh. He set them free from Egyptian captivity. They went out from Egypt with great possessions, but the greatest gift they left Egypt with was the Lord Himself. He went with them as a covenant companion to lead them in the way. The Lord leads those He redeems. And I'm saying that this was true for Old Covenant Israel, and it is true for New Covenant Israel too. All who have faith in Christ may say, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is Colossians 1.13-14. And all who have been thus delivered may take comfort in what Christ said to His disciples as He commissioned them, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Lord leads those He redeems. Not only does He free His people from bondage, He also goes on with them as their companion and as their guide. This is clearly demonstrated in the Exodus story. When the Lord freed Israel from Egyptian oppression, He did not stand on the border of Egypt to send them off into the wilderness alone. Can you picture it? Yeah. Goodbye. (laughs) You're welcome for your redemption, for your freedom. Good luck. I, I wish you well. That's not what the Lord did. Instead, He went with them to guide them and to direct them. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. The Lord leads those whom He redeems. 
And I want you to notice five things about the way the Lord leads His people. First of all, notice that the Lord leads His people personally. Look at verse 17. There we read, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, verse 18, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So He led them in this way. And now consider verse 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The Lord led His people personally. That is what I want to draw your attention to here. I suppose we would still say that the Lord led His people if He would have spoken to Moses instructing Him about the way in which they should go. So there is God, imagine it, uh, in Egypt still, speaking to Moses' prophet saying, Hey, when you leave, you're on your own, but go this way and not that way, it will be better. I guess that would be a kind of, of leading, right? Um, that would be a kind of, of direction provided by the Lord. Here's a map for you, Israel. You know, Follow the map. That would still be the Lord's leading or guiding. Um, but the Lord did not lead Israel in that way. Instead, He led them personally. He went with Israel as a companion and as a guide. The Lord was present with His people. Uh, this is what the psalmist celebrates in Psalm 46.1, saying... God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. God is with us. He is present with us. Uh, this is Old Covenant Israel here um, speaking through this psalm. Uh, and we may say the same thing. The, the Lord is a very present help in trouble. And in Psalm 145, 18, uh, we hear a testimony to this fact as well. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. And then finally in Deuteronomy 4, 7, Moses himself reflects upon God's personal presence when he says to Israel, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it, as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon Him. So Moses is speaking to the people of Israel, and he's, and he's saying to them, after the Exodus experience has long passed, he's saying, consider it, Israel. God is so very near to us. He is present with us. He's been with us all of these years. The Lord leads those He redeems personally. He is present with His people to guide them. At the time of the Exodus, the Lord demonstrated to Israel that He was present with them by appearing to them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. He gave them this, this, this visible uh, testimony concerning his, his presence. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. These were not two different pillars, but one and the same. In the daylight, the pillar or column appeared as a cloud. At nighttime, the pillar was radiant. The pillar was a manifestation of the glory of the Lord. We know that God is not a pillar of cloud or fire. This is not what He is. He is a most pure spirit. He's not, phys He's not physical. He is invisible. But God has sometimes manifested Himself to His people. He showed Himself to be personally present with Israel at the time of the exodus from Egypt through a radiant pillar of cloud. And I wonder, 
Do you agree with me that the Lord was gracious to manifest His glory to Israel in this way? This was a gracious act of condescension. I suppose He could have simply spoken to them through Moses, saying, I will be with you always to bring you safely into the land. He could have told them that. And then they would have been required to walk by faith and not by sight. They would have been required to simply believe and to know that God was indeed with them. He was present with them. But God accommodated Himself to their weakness by showing Himself to them in this visible way. This was an act of of grace, of mercy to the people of Israel. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night was a visible and constant testimony to God's presence with the people. The Lord leads those whom He redeems. He leads them not from afar and not through intermediaries only, but personally. He went with the Hebrews to guide them in the wilderness. And under the new covenant, the same is true, but even more so. Even more so. For under the new covenant, we have been brought nearer to God through the blood of Christ. God is our Father, and we are His children. Those who have faith in Him are united to Him, that is to Christ, spiritually. The Spirit of God indwells them. God was personally present with Old Covenant Israel to guide them as they sojourned. And this is true for the Israel of God under the New Covenant in an even more intimate way. And we must realize this. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, Christ says. Um, I will come and make my home with you and I will be with you. Uh, is, is what he says. Do you remember those words that Christ spoke to his disciples regarding his personal presence with us? Here it is in John 14, 18 through 23, as he was preparing them for his departure, for his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He said to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. A lot can be said about this passage that I've just read, but you could at least hear this principle of personal presence, can't you? Christ comforting his disciples, saying, I'm going away, but I will be personally present with you as you sojourn. In this world, if the Lord has redeemed you, if He has brought you to faith in Christ the Messiah, then He is with you personally to lead you by His Word and His Spirit. The second observation I wish to make is that the Lord leads His people compassionately. The Lord leads His people compassionately. I suppose I could again point to the way that the Lord showed Himself to Israel in the pillar of cloud. Again, that was an act of compassionate condescension. But here I wish to draw your attention to the way the Lord accommodated to the people's weakness. Um, When He took them out of of Egypt, He led them in the long way, in a roundabout way, in order to avoid military conflict, for He knew that the people were not ready yet to handle it. 
You can picture Egypt, can't you? I'm here speaking geographically on a map. It's situated at the very northeast corner of the African continent. And the Hebrews were likely enslaved in the northeast corner of Egypt. They were engaged in the work of building military storehouse cities for Pharaoh to defend Egypt from a northern invasion. The land of promise, uh, the land promised Israel, the land of Canaan, was to the north of them and a little to the east. But when the Lord led Israel out of Egypt, He led them to the east and even to the south a bit. It was a strange way for them to go. It almost seemed as if they were headed in the wrong direction. Why did He take them this way? Uh, Canaan was almost directly to the north of them. That was the land promised to them. But the Lord took them to the east and even a little to the south. Why did He take them in this way? Why did He take them off the beaten path, as it were, and into the wilderness? Uh, Verses 17 and 18, they tell us, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. The Lord works in mysterious ways, doesn't He, brothers and sisters? Some of you right now are reflecting upon your own lives and and the paths that your life has taken. The Lord works in mysterious ways. We do not always understand His, His will for us. Sometimes we may wonder, why has He taken our life on this path? And oftentimes we do not know. By faith we believe that He has a purpose in all things, but we do not always understand what that purpose is. And I'm here saying that the Israelites must have wondered why the Lord was taking them the way of the wilderness, when there was a much smoother, a much straighter path available to them. They knew that Canaan was promised to them. They knew that was their destination. And there they go out of Egypt, not to the north, but to the east and even to the south. To wilderness places. It was a difficult path, a rough path, a path not well trodden. They must have wondered themselves, why this way? Why are you guiding us in this way, Lord? Why not straight to the north? But the Lord knew. The Lord knew. The Lord knew that the people were not ready for war. He knew that they would shrink back in fear, even preferring slavery in Egypt over battles with the fierce Philistines. And so I am here saying that the Lord compassionately led them into the wilderness so that they might be strengthened there. It must have seemed very mysterious to the Hebrews why they were heading in that direction, but this was an act of compassion. The Lord knew they were not ready, so He took them the way of the wilderness to strengthen them there. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 regarding temptation. No temptation has overtaken you That is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The phrase that I wish to draw your attention to is this. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. We know that God strengthens His people through testing. He strengthens us through trials and tribulations. But here Paul emphasizes the graciousness of God in this. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. In other words, 
Though he does will that his children be strengthened and refined through trials of various kinds, he will not permit his children to be overrun by temptation. He will give them, he will give them only what they are able to handle. And of course, they will handle it with the strength that he himself provides to the glory of his name. The Lord leads his people compassionately, I am saying, being mindful of their strengths and weaknesses, their progress in sanctification or lack thereof. He does not coddle his children, mind you. He's not a helicopter parent, in other words. He does not shield them from every trial, tribulation, or temptation. But he is also faithful to never allow them to be tempted beyond their ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that we may be able to endure it. God leads His people personally. He leads His people compassionately. I think we see evidence of that here in the Exodus story. Thirdly, in our text, we see that the Lord leads His people faithfully. And I will point to two things to demonstrate the Lord's faithfulness. First of all, consider again the Lord's presence in the cloudy pillar. How did Israel know that this pillar of cloud was the Lord and not just a cloud? Have you ever wondered that? Well, two things. One, it must have looked unique. It was a cloud, but not an ordinary cloud. It was shaped strangely like a pillar, and at night it was clearly radiant. This was no ordinary cloud. This was a manifestation of the glory of God Almighty. Two, this pillar of cloud did not dissipate as clouds typically do, but remained permanently with them day and night. And so I am saying that the Lord leads those He redeems, and He leads them faithfully. He led them faithfully in this pillar of cloud by day and by night. It did not dissipate. It did not leave them, but was with them to guide them and direct them as they sojourned in the wilderness. Secondly, I wish to draw your attention to this little remark about the bones of Joseph. I wonder if you caught that in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. That might seem like an insignificant little remark, a kind of tangent to the main storyline. I say it is central. This is fascinating. And this really does tie everything together for us. I wonder if you remember Joseph. I'm sure that you do. The last part of the book of Genesis was about him. He was the son of Jacob who was sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers, whom the Lord raised up to be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Do you remember that story? One of my favorite Bible stories, in fact. Um, Joseph. And, and by the way, I wonder if you could see that Joseph's own life foreshadowed on a small scale the experience of the Hebrews on a large corporate scale. Do you notice that? Joseph down into Egypt and then raised up again. And so too the Hebrews down into Egypt and then raised up again. I think that is worth noting here. But the book of Genesis concluded with these words, very last words of the book of Genesis. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, of the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's how the book of Genesis concludes. You can see, therefore, how this little remark that is made in Exodus 13, 19 regarding the bones or the remains of Joseph is very significant to the storyline of Scripture. The remark about the bones of Joseph ties the story of Genesis and Exodus together. 
These are not two different stories, but one in the same story. Exodus is a continuation of the story in Genesis. And it is a reminder that this exodus from Egypt happened just as God had promised. That is the point. This exodus from Egypt happened just as God had promised. And as the Hebrews went to the trouble to collect Joseph's remains, to take them with them back to the promised land, it was a reminder to them of the precious and very great promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of His faithfulness to keep His word. That is the point that I'm here making. The Lord led Israel faithfully into the wilderness. He was with them day and night perpetually, guiding and directing their every step. But He was also faithful in the sense all of their sojournings were a result of His perpetual faithfulness even in generations past. And as the Hebrews carried the bones of Joseph off into the wilderness toward the promised land, they were reminded of the Lord's covenantal faithfulness to them. Those the Lord redeems, He leads, and He leads His redeemed faithfully. He leads His people faithfully day and night, and He leads His people faithfully from generation to generation. To state it differently, God is faithful to His people momentarily, and He is also faithful to His people covenantally. And I am saying that the Exodus was a demonstration of both of these things. And so as God's people today, we must trust that the Lord will be faithful to give us this day our daily bread, that He will be faithful to us day by day, night by night, individually and momentarily, thanks be to God. And we must also trust that the Lord will be faithful to preserve us and to bring us safely home into the new heavens and earth, which He promised to Abraham and to us. For God is faithful, both on this micro scale and also on a macro scale. You know, I can't help but make this observation. Interpreted typologically, which I've already argued briefly is the proper interpretation of Exodus, this little story regarding the bones of Joseph being taken out of the tomb and back to Canaan is a picture of the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection in Him on the last day. Can you see it? Egypt typifies the domain of darkness. The Exodus typifies our redemption in Christ Jesus. Israel in the wilderness typifies our sojourning. What do you think Canaan typifies? The land of Canaan, the promised land. What is it a type of? It has to be a type of the new heavens and new earth. In fact, that is what Hebrews 11 says it is. And here I am saying that when Joseph's bones were lifted out of the grave and carried to Canaan, it was an earthly picture of what all who are in Christ will experience on the last day when Christ returns to raise the dead, to judge the ungodly, and to usher His people into the heavenly eternal land of promise. Do you see it? I see it. I think this is a type of the consummation, of, of the resurrection of the dead on the last day of our eternal reward. Joseph had faith in the promises of God given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and also to him. And his faith was so strong that he said, you guys are going to leave this place in generations to come. Don't leave me here. Take my remains with you and bury me in the land of Canaan, for there is where my hope lies. Not in Canaan itself, but the new heavens and earth, which Canaan is a type of. Do you get it? That's the story. If we believe the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, we must see that this is the story that is being told here. Brothers and sisters, under this category, 
under this point that God is faithful to those whom He redeems. Do not fail to see God's daily faithfulness towards you. He leads you day and night. He provides you with daily bread. But do not lose sight of His generational and covenantal faithfulness. It's very important that we hold on to this as well. He has been and will be faithful to keep all of His promises regarding the redemption of His elect and the Messiah. And your momentary trials and tribulations must be considered in light of God's big picture covenantal faithfulness. We, we must do this. For it is this big picture story of our redemption in Christ and of our eternal and unshakable hope in Him that gives meaning to our present sufferings. We must interpret our present sufferings in light of this big picture hope that we have in Christ concerning the new heavens and new earth. The Apostle Paul and his companions knew that God was faithful to lead, uh, to lead them to their heavenly inherent inheritance. And this is why he could say, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, whenever I read that I almost laugh. You know the story of the Apostle Paul. These things that he called light and momentary afflictions were not light and momentary afflictions according to our definition of things. He suffered tremendously, but he looks, he looks at his present sufferings, imprisonments and beatings and shipwrecks. Ultimately, he's beheaded because of his faith in Christ and of his testimony. He calls these things light and momentary afflictions. How does he speak of them in this way? For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I wonder if you could see what's going on here in Paul's mind and heart. He's interpreting the sufferings that he's experiencing in this light, this life in light of eternal glory. He's saying they're light and momentary, they're nothing. I can endure them. I have no problem enduring them because I know what's being accomplished. I know what God is doing. He's preparing me now for that. And here I am saying, brothers and sisters, that we must, we must interpret our present sufferings in light of the big picture plan of redemption. Imagine being one of the Hebrews walking out of Egypt into the wilderness and you're only a mile or two into the journey and you're thinking... Why are we going to the east and to the south? We're, we're going to be entrapped by the Red Sea. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. What, what, what is going on here? You know, uh, I, they immediately began to experience suffering, not to mention when the Egyptians started to pursue them once again to destroy them. Uh, many of them lost it. We'll come to that in just a moment. But what would give them perseverance except this? Interpreting each and every step, each and every suffering in light of the big picture story of what God was doing. He was going to be faithful to bring them back to Canaan, and Canaan itself was not the point, but the new heavens and new earth were. The new heavens and new earth that would be theirs through faith in the Messiah promised to them, to Adam first and even to Abraham. Uh, this is what will give us resolve, brothers and sisters. This is what will give us the ability to persevere in our sojourning through the trials and tribulations of life. Remembering the Lord's faithfulness, not just as it pertains to our daily bread, but remembering the Lord's faithfulness as it pertains to His covenant promises regarding the new heavens and new earth earned by the Messiah, Christ Jesus our Lord. Here I'm saying that when the Hebrews carried the bones of Joseph out of Egypt, 
they were remembering these promises. The promises that God had made concerning Canaan. And again, more than that, the new heavens and earth of which they were a type. And they were declaring, God is faithful. God is faithful. God leads those He redeems personally, compassionately, faithfully. He also leads us clearly. And that is the fourth observation that I wish to make. God leads His people clearly. I've already acknowledged that God's ways are mysterious. Again, the Hebrews must have wondered, why is the Lord leading us this way? And where will He lead us tomorrow? There was much that was mysterious in Israel's sojourning. But here I'm saying that despite the mystery, the Lord did lead them clearly. We should remember how the Lord spoke to Moses. He spoke clearly to him and through him to the people. And we should remember the clear message communicated by the plagues. The the meaning was unmistakable. The Lord is God Most High, and the Hebrews were His chosen people. And now we learn that the Lord led His people into the wilderness by this pillar of cloud and fire day and night. Why the Lord was leading them in the direction that He did was somewhat mysterious to them, but that He was leading them where He did was unmistakable. Do you see it? Why this way, Lord? Many of them did not know. But that He was taking them in this way, that was clear. They could see the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And here I am saying that we experience the same thing too, don't we? Don't we? Much that is mysterious. But nevertheless, God's leading is clear. I wonder if you've ever asked the question, why this way, Lord? I know you've asked it. Some of you are asking it even now. And I know that you have um, asked this question, some of you, a lot lately. Why this way, Lord? Uh, The truth is that we may never know. There's much about life in this world that is mysterious. But at the same time, God has also spoken clearly to us. Why has God decreed that our life take a particular path, only the Lord knows. But we know how the Lord has commanded us to walk on that path, don't we? That's the point. Why this path? I don't know. How am I to walk on this path? That the Lord has revealed. He's told us, for He has spoken. We are to walk by faith, not by sight. For that is what 2 Corinthians 5.7 says. We are to walk in the Spirit. That's what Galatians 5.16 says. We are to walk in the light, not the darkness. That is what Proverbs 2.13 says. We are to walk in the narrow path, not the broad path. That is what Matthew 7.13 says. And how do we know how we ought to walk on this narrow path? We confess that God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Psalm 119.105 He has given us His law. And so we are to be consumed. We are to be concerned primarily not with the questions of why, but of of how, you know? Why this path, Lord? You may never know. You probably won't. But Lord, how am I to walk on this path? That is what we are to concern ourselves with. Not with the mysteries of God's will, but with obedience to God's revealed will. Moses himself said this in Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29.29, maybe put that one to memory. There are secret things that belong to the Lord. They are His, they are not for us. They are mysteries to us. But the things that are revealed, they belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do 
all the words of this law. So we are to concern ourselves, not with the question of why, but of of what. What are we to do, Lord? How are we to walk on this path that you have set before us? That is to be our, our primary concern. The last observation that I have for today is this. The Lord leads His people defensively. And this point is drawn from verses 1 through 14 of chapter 14. Here in this text, we learn that Pharaoh changed his mind yet again regarding the freedom of the Hebrews. Four things prompted this change of mind. One, the Egyptians began to feel the loss of the Hebrew slaves economically. In verse 5, we hear them say, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? They were building cities for the Egyptians, and all of that construction probably came to a screeching halt. They said, What have we done? Two, the Egyptians took note of Israel's strange and seemingly erratic course into the wilderness. They probably had spies following out after Israel. And they noticed that they seemed to be wandering in the wilderness aimlessly and even heading in a bad way towards the Red Sea where they would be entrapped. And so they thought to themselves, Ah, we have them now. Let us pursue them. But in reality, the Lord was luring the Egyptians out so that He might have the victory over them. Three, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart once more. This is what verse 8 says. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he, pers- pers- and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And four, in keeping with the rest of the story concerning Pharaoh's stubborn pride, we must see that Pharaoh was driven to pursue Israel because of his power, because he was a power-hungry tyrant. I think that is what is going on here. Uh, Pharaoh, more than anything, wanted to have power. And he could not stand the thought of these Hebrews going free. Now, brothers and sisters, these figures, power-hungry tyrants, will always be present in the world. They are satanic, for they further Satan's kingdom, a kingdom characterized by bondage, by oppression, by death. And we see that modeled here for us in the life of Pharaoh. Even after experiencing all of these plagues, <laughs> still he was bent on going after Israel to pursue them into the wilderness. He was mad. He was a sociopath. He was a tyrant. And we see that demonstrated through his action here. How did Israel respond as the enemy approached? We see that they quickly lost faith, or at least wavered severely in the faith. To their credit, they did cry out to the Lord. That is good. But in verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses had some trouble on his hands as a leader, didn't he? What a difficult task he was called to fulfill. And this is the response of many who make false professions of faith. They may appear to follow Christ for a time, but when the evil one tempts them or attacks them, they conclude that that it would have been better to continue in the kingdom of darkness. They forget how miserable and oppressive life in that kingdom was, and so they turn back. I'm here referring to those who make false professions of faith. But the Lord keeps those who are His, just as He kept Israel from falling away entirely. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord was right 
that Israel was not ready to face battle. He was right about that. And this is why he led them into the way of the wilderness instead of on the direct road to Canaan where the Philistines were. But notice that the very first lesson the Lord taught Israel was not how to fight with the sword, but how to trust the Lord in battle. That was the very first lesson that he taught to them regarding battle. Not how to fight with the sword, but how to trust the Lord in battle. Again, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you today. And the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Israel would be called to fight in the future. God made them into a nation and He would use them to judge other nations once their wickedness was complete. But even when Israel was called to fight with the sword, they were to fight while trusting in the Lord and not in their own strength. The Lord leads those whom He redeems. He leads them personally, compassionately, faithfully, and clearly. He also leads us defensively. Here I am saying that He fights for us. He calls us to fear not, to stand firm, to see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord fights for us, and often we have only to be silent. Hear, O Israel, let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. That is Deuteronomy 20 verses 3 through 4. Moses spoke those words to Old Covenant Israel and I am saying they are words for New Covenant Israel as well. Hear, O Israel, let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for our redemption in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have set us free from the domain of darkness, that you have delivered us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. This all by your grace and not by our own doing. And we thank you that you are with us always, even to the end of the age, through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have not left us alone as orphans, but you have made your home with us. You have indwelt us. Help us as we sojourn, O Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to trust you in all things, knowing that you are our faithful companion. Help us to follow your clear guidance that we would concern ourselves not with your mysterious will, the secret things that only you know, but that we would concern ourselves with obedience to your law day by day, night by night. Father, we pray that you would sustain us in this world, that you would make us faithful sojourners until we come into our eternal inheritance, the new heavens and new earth. Preserve us individually, O Lord, and preserve us corporately as your people. We say it in Christ's name, and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.